I remember just thinking, um, I don't want to live anymore. When I was like, you know, 17, 18 is when I first started drinking. I remember I told my mom and dad for the last time, like, hey, I need help. And I actually mean it this time. That's for those of you listening, whether you're a resident in the program, whether you're a family member, a current or a future supporter. But life today is good. When I was seeing it work in other people as well as myself, something just changed. I've got a little over five years of sobriety. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. All right. Well, welcome back to the Hope Dealers Podcast. We are so excited to be back. And I'm excited about this guest today. Uh, we've had the pleasure in the last handful of episodes hearing from you know some staff members, some residents. But today, we are joined by the finished product, a Hope is Alive alumni, my good friend, Sydney. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Sean? Well, I'm fantastic. Just so glad that you're here. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yes. So, Sydney, just right off the bat, you're a Hope is Alive alumni. Mm-hmm. Um but the difference between you and some of the alumni that I've talked to recently is you didn't end up working for Hope is Alive. So just a straight up alumni. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. <laughs> I was like, dang, docking on him. Nah. Yeah, no, um, I actually am a full-time realtor. So when I was in the program, I was you know, just looking for work and I got connected to somebody who was actually at a Sunday night meeting. Uh, it was actually a attorney and okay. I, I'm a jack of all trades. That's kind of a joke, an ongoing joke that I've done a little bit of everything. Um, right. And at that point in time, I was actually studying for my LSAT. I had shadowed a couple attorneys. And so I just asked this individual if they were hiring. He said, no, but I do know my wife works for a real estate agent on the South side who's looking for just kind of an admin assistant kind of thing. Wow. And so I was like, okay, sure. Like, yeah, I'll give her a call. I interviewed with her. She gave me the job and I started off doing very simple things like picking up dry cleaning, dropping the dogs off at the groomer, those kind of things. Coffee orders. Yeah, exactly. And then she just saw a lot of potential in me and brought me into the office full time. And so from there, my real estate career just kind of took off and I love it. So I went to the world. (laughs) Look at you. So when did you graduate the Hope is Alive program? So I graduated from Hope is Alive in... Gosh, it would have been March of 2020. March of 20. I remember that. actually. Yeah, I graduated Friday night and then we went into COVID lockdown on Monday. Yes, that's <laughs> right. OK, so get this. This is crazy. So I remember that graduation very well. Um, I was obviously I was working for Hope is Alive at the time, and I remember us getting set up for it. And I remember a text going out. I think it was from Ali. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever seen this thing uh, that this was optional yeah. for residents to come. Yeah, that stunk. I didn't have as big of a crew as everybody else yeah. at their graduation. <laughs> um, and I remember being like, oh man, like this is getting serious. But not just that, the next day was actually mm-hmm. my one year of sobriety. Oh my gosh. So I remember like graduation night, which, you know, even graduation night is just always a fun night. Yeah, um, it's a blast. Just, just, just to be there. Um, so it was like, oh yeah, great night, graduation night. The next day, one year sober and yeah, the world shut down. <laughs> That day. I mean, like, um, so a lot of good followed up by a lot of not great, I guess. Yeah. My first alumni meeting was had over zoom and yeah, it was just like, what a bummer. And like AA meetings, like you went from your safety bubble. Like when you're, uh, 
a resident in the program, like you're in such a safe little bubble. Yeah. And then you get out and like, there's a part of you that's really excited yeah. to like be out of that. Mm -hmm. But there's also a part of it that's a little scary because Hope is Alive is all you've known sober. And right. so, you know, you're kind of figuring out the world, you know, you're an alumni, like you're figuring out the world in its own capacity. Yeah. And so to step out of the program and into the real world, like my first apartment and mm -hmm. you know, all those cool things and then, to have AA meetings be via Zoom and it, like my life was on Zoom, like even everything, work, yeah. yeah, everything was shut down like really hardcore at first on them figuring out what's essential work, what's not essential work. And thankfully real estate was essential work. So I was sure. able to go back to work, but it was so different. And so it was kind of a culture shock, like yeah. even bigger culture shock in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I remember my graduation, um, which was this past January, 2022 and, um, by this point, COVID was just kind of a thing. Yeah. But this was when there was a bad spike in January. Oh yeah, that's right. There was after all the holidays. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I had COVID. Yeah. I don't there think was, I got to go to your graduation. You weren't there. There was a lot of alumni that got sick. Yeah. There was a handful of the houses. Lance and Allie had just become parents, so they weren't yeah. there. And I remember just that whole week being like, okay, I am walking that stage. Absolutely. And I passed all my COVID tests with flying colors. You know, I was good. And like, I want to say two days after I graduated, I tested positive for COVID. Oh my gosh. And at the time I was first, I was like, all right, whatever. Like, I'm glad I got it now. Yeah. Um, you know, event season was over. Graduation was over. But uh -huh. then it was what you just said. It was like this shock. I was stuck at home mm -hmm. for 10 days. Yeah. And I didn't have 10 guys around me. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, just, it's crazy how that goes. And it's so weird too, because like, even if you like had to be stuck in one of the houses, for example, like you always had so many people around you. Yes. You always had something to do. There was a movie night or there was a Wednesday night meeting or a Sunday night meeting or CODA or SLAA, like all these things to do. <coughs> so like being home in the program wasn't lonely. Right. And so like graduating into the pandemic, it was a difficult obstacle to overcome because you were isolated and yeah. that's not normal for an HIA resident to be isolated. So I always make the joke to people when they ask, you know, how's uh, how's I was being an alumni and I'm always like, you know, it was so weird for the first time in, you know, three years for me, mm -hmm. um, having to make plans. <laughs> So true. Like all of a sudden your calendar's so open you're like, yeah, I have all this time. And then you're like, I don't know how to fill it. Yeah. Like I remember the first few Friday nights coming home and I, I didn't bother me that I didn't have anything to do. I was, you know, mm -hmm. you know, work was so busy. I would come home and play a little guitar, just kind yeah. of chill, watch a movie. But then it was like after a month and I was like, oh man, like if I want to hang out with people, I have to like <laughs> call them. There's not just like, cause you know how it was, you were in the yeah. homes for a while. You come home and there's like, all right, All let's just people. Yeah, let's just see who's home tonight. Yeah. And we'll we'll pick these three or those four and you know, uh -huh. we'll catch a movie, we'll get dinner, we'll stay in, whatever. Right. Um, right. There's just a lot of things that you don't really think about. Uh-uh. Um, and it's something that I think is important. If you're a resident and you're listening, you know, mm -hmm. think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, while you're trying to rush, rush to graduate the program. Yeah, you miss it. Yeah. You wish you could go back all the time. Like I still have so many memories on my like Facebook or mm -hmm. my Snapchat or, you know, different things where a memory pops up and I'm like, Oh yes, I miss it. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, it's also, I remember thinking this like at all the graduations that I worked before my own, um, you know, doing the audio visual in the back because there was a point in the graduation. There always is where we do mm -hmm. slideshows for yeah. the graduates. 
And a lot of the slides are pictures of them and their time and mm -hmm. Hope was alive. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking like, wow, okay, so they're sitting there, the people that are graduating are sitting there watching this. They're watching their whole, not just like early life, but like their Hope is alive life mm -hmm. flash before them. And they're not going back to that house tonight. Like that's yeah. gotta be like very bittersweet. Yeah, it is. It really is because you form such strong connections and like in recovery, that's so important to yeah. form strong bonds and relationships with other people in recovery because we link arms with each other. We lift each other up. Yes. Um, and no matter where you're at, whether you're five days or five years, like you can each teach each other something so important. For and sure. so just to have that is such a blessing. And that's one thing that I thought I was going to hate that about sober living, mm -hmm. like in general. And I remember when my mom Cause I finally was like, okay, I'm ready to go to rehab. And my mom was like, okay, uh, here's a little catch. When you get out, you're going to Hope's Live. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I didn't really know what it was. Like I kind of did. Cause Lance had come to my church and spoken. So like okay. I knew it was, you know, this faith-based mission ministry recovery program, but I just didn't know what all it entailed. Like in my head, I'm picturing like church summer camp yeah. is what I'm picturing. <laughs> and so we looked at the website and I see all these pictures and I'm like, Oh, that ain't me, man. That's not me. I don't want to do this. And I got in and just immediately connected. And like, I mean, I'm going to one of the girls that when I first moved in, um, I'm going to her wedding this weekend. That's like, amazing. it's just so cool. Like to, uh, these are my lifelong friends yeah. and you don't think that when you get in, you're like, yeah. I'm going to hate these people. They're not going to like me. Yeah, I was going to say, things. or they're going to hate me. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to, yeah. They're going to hate me. They're not going to like me because you don't know who you are. Like you have no idea yeah. who you are. And we're also just at a point where things just haven't really been going our way. Yeah. yeah because we're, clearly because we're having to go into sober <laughs> living. Um, that's another thing. Residents just remember you are there for a reason. Yeah. Just Mm -hmm. Just remember that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I remember coming in and I was actually fairly open to the idea. I had no idea what Hope Was Alive was. Yeah. I looked at the website. I saw that they had a few homes in Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking, I hope I get the house with the pool. <laughs> Y'all were so lucky. And I got the house with the pool. They filled in the pool at Dub 2. I was like, what the that is heck? True. But you guys did have a pretty amazing meeting. Room. I mean, that's true. We had a gorgeous view of the lake. If you haven't been to yeah. Dub 2, um, RSVP to Nights in November coming up and you yes. can see it. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember like coming in and I was like, yeah, but none of these guys are going to like me. Mm -hmm. The idea of thinking that everyone is going to get it, like mm -hmm. that, you know, they know what you're going through. Just it, yeah. it's hard to grasp onto for some of us. Yeah. And especially, you know, like us, you know, for you coming out of treatment, for me coming out of the intensive care unit. Yeah. You've just been through a lot recently. Yeah. Um, but so have they. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They've been where you are. I remember meeting the guy in the house, my first friend I made, and he had been there for 16 months. And I was like, my 16, what have you been doing with yourself? Like, what? <laughs> You're like why? Yeah. <laughs> um, did you have, when you first came into the program, mm -hmm. did you like have a time limit where you like, okay, I'm going to be here for yeah, I was like, I'm going to be here like three months max and then I'm out. Like okay. I'm outie. I'm not staying that long. Like this isn't going to do anything for me. And literally, I think it was probably like two months in. I was like, okay, I love this place. Yeah. Like, 
even if it wasn't like the program, because of course you come in and you're like, I don't want to do all this work. Right. I don't want to do all this. This is stupid. Like that's just your mindset naturally. And you don't like being told what to do. Mm-hmm. None of us like being told what to do when we first get sober because we think we have it all figured out. Yeah. And so like, even if you don't like that aspect of it, it was the people, right. like all the amazing people I met. And when I came into the program, it was still fairly small. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, it had grown, uh, but we were only in Oklahoma City in Tulsa. I went to the Wichita launch party. Yeah. Like that's how long ago I was in the program. And so, you know. That's crazy. (laughs) Like I saw that, that popped up on my memories the other day. I was like, whoa, that was a long time ago. You forget how long it's been since you were in the program once you're out of it. But um, yeah, it's, even if you dislike the program itself, like the paperwork, I guess, like the step work part of the program. And the phase work, all that, you, you fall in love with the people. Like if you really just let your walls down, which is so hard, like you have your walls built up so high because you are just so guarded. Like terrible things have happened to you. You've been through trauma as an addict or an alcoholic. And so if you just like let those walls down and really let people in and really just kind of submit to at least that part of the program, like that is kind of the catalyst for everything. Yes. So, so good. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's just this whole different world that we're mm-hmm. entering. Um, and I think I remember when my mom dropped me off, she said, this can be the first day of the rest of your life. Yeah. But also if you relapse while you're in there, uh, <laughs> you, I'm not coming to get you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and that's the thing, man, is like for so many of us, we come in and mm-hmm. this is the last yeah, this is, this is it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's either this or bust. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just amazing, you know, to sit here with people like yourself, you know, you've got what, five plus years, four, four. Yeah, okay, four. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we're almost there. Yeah, no friends. No friends. <laughs> um, but four plus years later and just to see the miracle. Yeah. That's, that is sitting right in front of me today. Oh. Um, we're going to take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsors, and then we're going to come back and dive a little bit into Sydney's story and also just keep on chatting about Hope is Live. We'll see you in just a second. This episode of the Hope Dealers podcast has been brought to you by Finding Hope Support Groups. Finding Hope is a support group for loved ones of addicts. Through our meetings, you'll find education, inspiration, and a community of other loved ones who have been impacted by addiction. Finding Hope Support Groups currently has 40 meetings across the country. To find out more, visit findinghope.today. Now, Sydney, just for our viewers, um, I've known you for a few years, so I've heard your story. Mm -hmm. But for our viewers, you know, how did you get started in active addiction? So for me, my story, I grew up in a very happy, healthy household. Mom Mm -hmm. and dad in the picture, amazing family, younger sister. And um, I, my dad was a pastor for Mm. a time and then he went into pastoral counseling. And so um, my life was very, I guess, quote unquote normal, like nothing's ever normal, but um, it was a very happy childhood. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on here. The last few guests I've had, you know, it's like, you don't have to have a rough childhood. Right, exactly. To get caught by this thing. Yeah, and so um, I experienced a lot of death growing up. Um, The first death that really just kind of like swept me on my feet was uh, I was 13 and my cousin Mackenzie, who was 16, had committed suicide. 
And back then that was, I mean, suicide's always been prevalent, but like, especially just, I feel like in our generation growing up, it's been so prevalent. And yeah. so, um, that just really took me off my feet. For sure. And so, and our cousins are so close. Like we were all very, very close. There's six of us. And so it was really hard to go through that. Yeah. And then um, shortly after that, my grandfather passed away from lung cancer very quickly. And wow. so all the deaths that I was experiencing were very tragic and very sudden and not just, you know, death is death and it's difficult at any point. Sure. But it, you know, at such a young age, that was very hard yeah. for me to understand grief and wrap my head around it. Yeah, especially being with people that you had close relationships yeah. with. It wasn't like, you know, you heard about your mom's great aunt yeah, who you've never exactly. met before. Yeah. It so. was, yeah, it was hard. And so, um, growing up, I, it just felt like lots of funerals, like, yeah. but you know, I pushed through, I was happy about it. And, um, then when I was 18, my, well, I would be, I was 17. Uh, my dad was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And okay. so, um, I was very close to my dad. I was definitely daddy's girl. And I just, felt this very heavy responsibility mm -hmm. to hold it together yeah. for my family, like mm -hmm. be perfect, um, get the perfect grades, be super involved in school, like not to let it phase me. And my mom worked full time. Like my mom, you know, was the breadwinner for our family. So she was always working, trying to, you know, get income. We had um, home hospice nurses for my yeah. dad. And so there was a lot of times where I was helping my dad before he got to the point where he needed full-time care, you know, just put on his shoes and little things like that. I'm just trying to be the all-American child. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so I just had this really unrealistic expectation in my head mm -hmm. of how my parents wanted me to be. Right. And so I also, during this time, remember having a very transactional relationship with God. Yeah. Um, I'm good, so good things happen to me. I'm bad, bad things happen to me. And when my dad was sick, I remember praying so hard every night for God to heal him. I was like, God, I know you can heal him. Why aren't you healing him? And then it was five days after my high school graduation, uh, my dad had gone into hospice mm. the day of my graduation, during my graduation party. And then uh, five days later passed away. And at that point in time, I just kind of like turned my emotions off. I yeah. was like, I don't care anymore. God doesn't care about me. Mm. I'm done. Yeah. I'm done trying to be perfect. I'm done trying to be good. I'm done trying to please everybody, which no one was asking me to do. That's just what I put in my head. Right. And so I had just kind of hit my F it button. Like mm -hmm. I didn't care anymore. And so I first experimented with drugs while my dad was still sick. Um, I had a coworker who was like, hey, like she knew what I was going through. And she was like, hey, you know, come hang out with me and my friends just, you know, to kind of get some relaxation, take the edge off. And I smoked marijuana for the first time. I'd never done drugs, never drank, had no desire to. And I think there was just a part of me that was looking for an escape. Sure. And um, when I tried it, I remember the feeling was just like, this is nice. Yeah. Like I want to feel this way all the time. Enjoying this head change. Yeah, yeah. It was the head change. It was like, I didn't have to feel my grief and I didn't have to deal with my problems. That's a big one. What you said right there. I didn't have to deal with my problems. Mm -hmm. That is something that I feel like everybody who's gone through addiction, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, we're just looking for an escape from reality. Mm -hmm. We don't have to, we not have to deal with anything. Trying to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this just puts on this mask. Mm -hmm. That's just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's honestly, I feel like that's why so many people, whether you're an addict, alcoholic or not, 
use substance. It's yeah. to get away, to get a break, to something like that. It's the same for us that, you know, those of us, and I'm counting myself and you like, <laughs> have to come in here in the morning and get that cup of coffee. Yeah, exactly. You know? That's our new addiction. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's so many mornings when someone's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't have my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, so I went off to college mm -hmm. shortly after that. And it's always funny. I always tell this story because it's just, I wonder what life would be like now, but, uh, I rushed, so went Greek life, and I had two sorority choices. Mm -hmm. I had the party sorority, final two, yeah, hardcore party sorority, and the other one was uh, all the girls I went to high school with, middle school with, who were like the good Christian, level-headed girls, and I went with the party sorority. <laughs> I think there was a part of me that was like, <laughs> screw my old life, I'm getting away from that, yeah. and I'm going towards what, the, I was like creating this alternate ego of yeah. myself that I like, I guess what I wanted to be, but I wasn't. Well, I you were know. also, I think, you know, it's probably fair to say you were looking for some other people that were gonna co-sign yeah. your behavior. Yeah, I didn't want to be with the people who knew that wasn't me. I wanted to be with the people who had no idea who I am so I could like recreate this image of myself. Yeah, and just like, you know, the reason it's so hard for a lot of us to stop doing drugs and or drinking, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to reach out for help because if we know as soon as we do that, we got to stop. Yeah. So in your case, it's like, okay, if I go over here with the Christian mm -hmm. sorority, like I'm not going to be able to do this. Yeah. You know, even if that wasn't, you know, you, the forefront on your, you know, on the forefront yeah. of your mind. Well, um, and at that point in time too, it's crazy because I wasn't even like that hard into my addiction yet. Like right. I didn't even realize that was a part of myself. Like I was just, you know, doing the typical, like, you graduated high school, pre-college kind of partying, mm -hmm. but it was still very manageable at that point. Like sure. I didn't really see it as an issue. Like I could go drink with my friends and not have a drink or smoke or whatever, like the rest of the time. Yeah. So I feel like there was a part of me that was waiting to like get away. Cause yes. I had, you know, I had expectations to uphold with my family and I didn't want them to see that part of me. So get to college, really start enjoying alcohol. And just, it was, I was a graphic design major and I um, was not going to class. And if I was, I was high. Yeah. Uh, so it was like, I had to be high or drunk from sunup to sundown, regardless of what I had to do that day. Yeah. So after my first semester of college, my, no, I think it was my first year. I can't remember. It was first semester or first year when I was home. My mom, you know, pulled me aside. She was like, hey, I know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't be doing that. You should stop. And I think there was a part of her that maybe thought I was just experimenting. Sure. And like with how I had been, she thought like I had the capability to stop because she had never, like, I didn't know I had an addictive personality, Yeah. you know? And so I think her and I both thought, okay, yeah, no big deal. Let's I can just stop. get out in front yeah. of this now. Yeah. Like, let's be open and honest with each other. I see, you know, experimenting with all this, you know, with pot and drugs and yeah. I don't think you should do that. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll stop. No issue. And then I go back. Yeah, it was Christmas. It was Christmas break when that happened. And mm -hmm. I go back and I got involved in um, a very toxic relationship. Uh, it was physically, verbally, mentally abusive. And he had friends that were drug dealers. Mm. And that's when I started experimenting with hallucinogens, cocaine, you know, pills, that kind of stuff. And it was just like, it opened a whole nother door yeah. into a deeper world yeah. of it. And I remember 
kind of just having that, I don't know, like there was just a part of me that knew how bad it was for me mm-hmm. and knew how dangerous, the situation I was in was so dangerous. Yeah, Like I could have lost my life, not due to drugs and alcohol, but because of the person that yeah, I was because with. The company yeah, because of the company I was keeping. And um, I just didn't, I don't know, there was a part of me that wanted to deny it because sure. I didn't want to lose access to the drugs that I had. Like I was willing to go through beatings in order to have access to drugs. And I think that's when it really started to dawn on me that I had a problem, Yeah. but I didn't want to acknowledge it. I wasn't ready to acknowledge it yet. So let me stop you real fast. Yeah. You, you know, you're going through beatings yeah. just to get drugs. Yeah. You're smart though. Yeah. You're aware of the situation around you. Mm-hmm. Is there this little voice in your head that's telling you, well, it's already come this far, like turn back now. No. I didn't have that voice in my head. I think there was a part of me that missed my dad so much Mm -hmm. that I was so willing to fill that male figure void in my life with whoever gave me attention. And at that point in time, that was, you know, my ex. And so I was, I don't know, like, I wish I could tell you, I was, I don't remember a lot of that part of my (laughs) life either, but like thinking about like the sober minded moments, it was like, he loved me and he could like flip that switch so quickly of like abuser to very sweet, very charming, you know, cause at first there were no problems and yeah. then it just so quickly spiraled. Um, and it wasn't, so that happened right before summer break, mm-hmm. got into that relationship. And I remember there was a time that, uh, I took a weekend to go and visit him, yeah. uh, from where he was from. And, we were, it was 4th of July weekend and I was staying with his parents in his family home and we were just partying. Like that's all we were doing is partying, partying, partying. And we went out to a giant field for 4th of July and he had done something to make me upset. And I don't even remember what it was. That's how, you know, that's yeah. how it goes. Sure. And so, <laughs> um, I remember I had like a box of wine, like the bag wine, like for all our party people, oh, you know yeah. what the bag of wine is. Been there. <laughs> so, yeah. But I had it all to myself and I had done multiple jello shots. I had done a couple lines already. And I remember I was so mad at him. I wanted to get so incoherently drunk that he had to take care of me. This is how addicts minds work people. Yep. And so I remember we're out in the field and then I don't remember anything after that. And I woke up in the hospital. Okay. I had fallen and hit my head on the tailgate and I woke up in the hospital, just absolutely covered in vomit, bruised, like all the things. And they were nowhere to be found. Like the people I was with. And so I was just like- Your friends. Yeah, well, my boyfriend at the time. I was like, what the (laughs) heck? Yeah. And so his mom came and picked me up from the hospital. And I remember having to go home from that weekend and tell my mom she was gonna get a hospital bill from insurance about me being so incoherently drunk and I don't know if I was pushed. I don't know if I felt, I don't know what happened, yeah. but um, I like even that didn't wake me up. Like it was insane to me, the things that refused to wake me up. Yeah. And so I go into the next semester of school and uh, I am, me and the boyfriend are on again, off again. It's very unhealthy. And I was actually with some friends and that, evening I went home with those friends and they took advantage of me. So I was sexually assaulted that Mm -hmm. night. Woke up the next morning, 
didn't fully remember what happened, but knew something had happened yeah. just because of the state my body was in. And uh, I think at that point I just decided, like I was so scared. Like I was so scared of not only my ex, but them. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go home when that semester was over. I was like, I'm just gonna transfer home to a university, transfer to UCO and Edmond. And I was like, I just need to be home. Yeah. Like if I go home, then I think everything will be okay. Yeah. And so I go home, my mom, I didn't tell her what happened. She knew my ex was abusive. Like she did not want me around him at all. Yeah. And so um, just went home, left all of them behind, like didn't even say a word. And once I got home, I really thought I could stop. Like I thought I could stop living that lifestyle. It wasn't gonna be an issue. So you were ready to stop. I was ready to stop. Yeah. yeah, like so many bad things had happened. I was like, I don't even recognize myself anymore. Yeah. So tried to stop, couldn't. Couldn't do it. <laughs> couldn't do it. And it was just like this ongoing cycle. And of course, like I'm using, my yeah. mom knows I'm using. She's like, okay. <laughs> I don't know if any parents can relate to this, but she decided she was going to take me to an AA meeting uh, <laughs> and attend the AA meeting with me. <laughs> yeah. And so, no, it was a, it was an NA meeting is okay. what it was. It was an NA but meeting. But it was a 12 step But meeting. it was a 12 step meeting, yeah. yeah. And so um, we go to the NA meeting and I'm just like tight-lipped. Not, I'm so uncomfortable. And my mom's like looking around like, this is great. And I'm like, I'm going to murder you. Like, yeah. What? And so I don't she, want to be here. I don't want to be here. And so she started going with me to meetings to make sure that I went. And I was like, I'm not getting anything out of this because you were sitting right next to me. How am I supposed to share all my problems and all my secrets about my addiction with my mom sitting right next to me? So fine. <laughs> so at this point though, <laughs> for one, I don't know. That's <laughs> I don't, I don't know the answer to that one. Yeah. I don't think you are. Gonna, no. Not, uh -uh. That, not at that point anyways. Um, yeah. But at this point, you know, you want to get sober, you said, but then mm -hmm. you can't. And so your mom's taking you to 12-step meetings. Like, <laughs> are you back to like, okay, now I don't think I want to get sober anymore. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I don't think it was that I didn't want to get sober. It was that I didn't know how. Right. And but, there was a part of me that didn't. Like, it was like a double-edged sword. It was like, okay. You knew I, you needed to. I knew I needed to, yeah. but I didn't want to. Sure. Like, I didn't want to keep hurting the people around me and hurting myself. So I really just started going to the meetings to appease my mom. So right there is very important for those of you listening. This whole thing is not possible if we don't want to do it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many times I relapsed, how many times friends that I know, tons of people, hundreds, thousands, um, mm -hmm. because they were just doing it for somebody else yeah, to appease other people. Yeah. And the thing is, is like that works for a little bit Yeah, it does. because the people you're doing it for give you praise, yeah. love and affirmation. Yeah. But after a while, that praise mm -hmm. and affirmation kind of dies off because mm -hmm. as far as they're concerned, that's what you should be doing. Yeah, so absolutely. when that's gone, yeah. so is the sobriety. Yep. And I think too, it's important to point out with that, like if you are trying to get sober for somebody else or you have a loved one that, you know, you've kind of pushed in a certain direction and, and it's just not working. Mm -hmm. Like there's also that feeling inside of your loved one or the addict, whoever you are, that um, it it is great at first. Yeah. Because, but for me, I think it was like, okay, they're not disappointed in me. Yeah. Like that, that disappointment is worn off. But then over time, it's like, if you're not doing it for yourself, 
you lose that will to fight against yourself. And so you give in and then that disappointment and that shame comes in all over again and it almost makes it worse. So it's like my, my rock bottom, honestly, this is gonna sound crazy. My rock, everybody's rock bottom's different. It doesn't have to be jail oh, yeah. or you know any of Does that. Not, like no. it, it's different for everybody. So I remember I had been out all night. I came in, my mom was in a room and she, at this point I was so tired. Like I tried to get sober so many times. I spent all day drunk or high and I was exhausted. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. And again, it was like, I did not know how to do it. It's like, okay, I could go to the 12 step meetings, but I wasn't, it wasn't. Well, what is that doing? Yeah, it wasn't working for me just by myself. Like I, especially as someone who had no idea what recovery looks like, cause nobody in my family had really struggled. I had one uncle that struggled with addiction and he never did 12 steps. So yeah. in my head, it, that wasn't what worked. Yeah, I think it, it's very understandable that for someone who does, you know, doesn't have anybody telling them how this mm-hmm. is supposed to work. You know, I mean, obviously once we're in recovery, I want to clarify, we do go to 12 step meetings yes. and, that, and that is a huge part of it. But I think yeah. what Sydney's saying is like, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how yeah. this works and you don't really want to be there in the first place. Just coming off the street into an mm-hmm. AA group yeah. is going to be a little difficult. Well, and I didn't have the accountability. Sure. Like as a kid, your parent telling you what to do, you're like, okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'll do it for a little bit and then we'll see what happens. And mm-hmm. I think I just, my mom, kept trying, like it was coming home to drug tests, coming home to breathalyzers, coming home to her telling me to stop doing this. And like, I'm not gonna listen to that. Like I just wasn't. And so it really got to the point where I was tired. Yes. And my mom, like one of the biggest things was she just stopped enabling me. I think she realized with the drug testing me and all that, that wasn't doing anything. Yeah. Like it, it, it wasn't doing anything for me. Like to feel guilt and shame, like I already felt heaps of that. Why do you think I keep numbing it? Yeah. And so I think for her, like I know that she was going to um, the Finding Hope classes and a couple others, like parents helping parents and things like that. And I think that she just started to learn that you can't do it for them. Right. Like they have to figure it out. So and she started going to Finding Hope, you said. Yeah, uh-huh. I know she had been to a couple Finding Hope meetings also with a friend of hers. So, so just like we talked about on Julie Quinlan's episode, guys, if you're, you know, the parent of a, someone who's struggling with addiction, there's a meeting for you right now. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, not when your loved one decides to, you know, surrender and make a change, mm-hmm. but there's a meeting for you right now. Finding Hope Support Groups has 40 meetings across the country. Yeah. Um, so sorry, continue. No, you're okay. <laughs> no, it's good, good, good to say. Just got to give them a little plug, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my mom had just like acted like she didn't care anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a part of me that like really wanted that attention. Yeah. And so I was like, why does she not care anymore? What the heck? <laughs> and so, like I said, I was out all night one night, came home, my mom was in a room and she just said, can I talk to you? Yeah. And I was like, oh, here we go. She's gonna sit here and shame me for being hungover and all these things. Well, I go into her room and she sits down and she said, I can't stop you from doing this. You are going to do what you're gonna do and it's gonna kill you. Yeah. And the look that she had on her face and the tone of her voice and her body language, it just like all of a sudden clicked Yeah. for me. I was trying to kill myself without realizing I was trying to kill myself. Yeah. And I hated myself so much that I was willing to, abs- like it was, I was giving myself a slow death. Yeah. And I didn't realize that's what I was doing. Cause you know, you hear in school growing up that drugs are bad, they'll kill you, alcohol's bad, it'll kill you, all the things. And you see, like, I didn't experience 
um, any friends ODing or anything like that when I was in my addiction. I know that's very fortunate because there's a lot of people who experience it firsthand. Um, But it was the way that she looked at me was the way, and the way the look in her eyes was how I had felt about myself this whole time. Yeah. And it finally clicked that I didn't want to die. I didn't, I didn't want to die. I wanted to live and I didn't want my mom. I think in that moment it clicked for me that I didn't want my mom to have to bury her child shortly after burying her husband. Yeah. Like the selfishness all of a sudden just like fell off of me. Like Holy spirit, I think was just really present in that moment too, but it just clicked. And I just looked at her and I don't think she was expecting this response because I fought her every step of the way. I just looked at her and I was like, okay, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. She was like, huh? (laughs) It's <laughs> like, she kind of looked at me with shock. I was like, I'm, I'm ready. I'll go to rehab. And so that's when she said, okay, here's the catch. You're going to go to hope is live after. And I was like, man, I thought I could just get away. So like, there's a part of me that was yeah. ready and wanted to, but there's also a part of me that was like still really resisting and wanted to do it my way. Your way. <laughs> but the thing is, is our way hasn't been working. No, not at all. My way was not working at all. And so I was open to going to rehab. And uh, I had also been seeing an alcohol and addiction counselor this whole time that my mom got me set up with. And I still see her to this day. Like she is a result of the miracle, you know? That's amazing. Even though I was in my active addiction, half the time when I went to see her, she just loved me through it and listened to me through it. But um, she called my counselor and asked good places to go. And I went to rehab and went door to door to Hope is Alive. And I'll never forget, I had the most incredible, I went to Oakwood Springs, so yeah. I didn't do a full 30, 60, 90 days. At that time, that was unheard of at Hope's Life because they required it. Yeah. And so they like made an exception for me because they had a bed open. Um, and so while I was there, I remember just everything coming out like mm-hmm. at once. And one of the nurses, pulled me aside, Nurse Lori, if you're listening to this, I love you, thank you. <laughs> um, Shout out. Yeah, she pulled me aside and she took me outside by ourselves. She was like, I'm not allowed to pull up my phone, but I want to show you something. And she started playing the song Masterpiece by David Gokey. And okay. if you haven't heard that song, go listen to it because it's incredible. And she just said, because, okay, sorry, let me backtrack. I was in rehab during my dad's anniversary. Okay. Like this was the day of my dad's anniversary. And she just saw how distraught I was. So she pulls me outside, shows me this song. And the song essentially is saying that we're God's canvas and he uses all different colors, black and blue, white and yellow, like all the colors. And so like sometimes there's beaten parts of our story, Yeah. but the whole picture, the bigger picture is a masterpiece that God's created for Mm. his kingdom, for his glory. And I just remember bawling because I was still so angry at God. And when you're first getting sober, you don't see the bigger picture. Like you picture the things that you want the selfish desires of getting sober, but you don't see the bigger picture. Right. And so she just ministered to me so much in that moment. And even once I still got into the program, when I moved into dub two, I still didn't love the spiritual aspect. Yeah. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and crossings was doing a Bible study with us at that point. And I remember we were breaking up into smaller groups, doing the Bible studies. And, uh, I just remember one of them just looked at me and was like one of the leaders and was like, why are you so angry? I was like, stop calling me out in front of everybody. What the heck, dude? But it it just made me pause and realize that the only person that my anger and unforgiveness towards God was hurting was me. Yeah. And I I love the saying, 
Unforgiveness is drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Come on. And that's what I was doing. Like yes. I was expecting God, <laughs> omnipotent God to like really hurt because of what I was doing. Right. <laughs> I mean, it hurts him when we fall, sure. we fall into sin, but the only, the person I was really hurting was me. And so finally I just released that. I got baptized. Yes. I started attending my home church again. Shout out to North Church. Like I just like fell in love with the Lord all over again. I got so many opportunities to tell my testimony yeah. and just like be ministered to and minister. And it, I just fell in love with the Lord all over again. It was like this new love. Yeah. Like you just fall, like that first falling in love feeling, which I just, I don't know. It was just incredible. That's amazing. And so that's my story. But I love yeah. hearing that. <laughs> And so we kind of touched on a lot of this at the beginning, but today you have over four years of sobriety. Mm -hmm. You're a Hope is Alive alumni. Mm -hmm. You're a full-time realtor. <laughs> yeah. um, you're still very active in the Hope yeah. is Alive Alumni Association, though. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, for those of you listening, we we call on Sydney quite a bit. <laughs> um, if, it, if it requires an alumni to be there, we're like, we can always call Sid. That's, that's a thing. <laughs> Um, not just the podcast out there. <laughs> <laughs> Other things. Other but. things. Yeah. Now, um, well, Sydney, thank you so much for joining us today yeah. and sharing your story. I hope everybody out there got as much as I got out of that because I say this at the end of almost every episode, but I'm going to keep going. That's the whole idea of the mm -hmm. Hope Dealers podcast. Mm -hmm. We just want to share stories. Yeah. Whether you're a resident, whether you're a current or future supporter, if you've got a family member here, mm -hmm. or most importantly, if you've got somebody out there still hurting. Mm-hmm. Our hope is that this is bringing you strength to your day yeah, and your journey, whatever that journey looks like. Mm -hmm. If this is your first time listening, be sure to like, subscribe, share it with those who uh, you think need to hear it. Um, and we will see you again next time. Thank you again, Sydney. Yeah, thank this you. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. A new place, a new home for a while. Let me feel alive. To hold me back, take my time, just enjoy the ride. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hope Dealers Podcast. If you or someone you know needs to get in touch with Hope is Alive, or maybe you just want some more information, please visit hopeisalive.net or call 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. Oh, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel so alive.